Father, thank you for our day. Thank you that we could worship you and be reminded you are creator, that you are good. As we turn our attention to your word, Lord, speak to us. Uh, give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's sermon is coming from Jonah 4, 5 through 11. I'm going to read our text and we'll talk about it. Jonah chapter 4, 5 through 11. You can grab your Bible or app or read on with us on the screen. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see, till, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is God's word. Our teaching point or main point of focus here today from the text that we could extrapolate is the Lord's compassion for Champaign-Urbana, for CU and our response, the Lord's compassion for CU and our response. Uh, and I know, of course, we're not talking about Jonah, he says nothing about CU, so we'll get to that. But here are three supporting points to help us along the way. Jonah's false hope, God's sovereign compassion, our invitation. Jonah's false hope, God's sovereign compassion, our invitation. Let's consider Jonah's false hope. What is Jonah's hope? Well, in the text, both this specific text for today and throughout the book of Jonah, there's been this tension between deliverance and destruction. Will God deliver Jonah and the sailors who were on the ship in the midst of the tempest in chapter one, or will he destroy them? Will the storm prevail or will God's deliverance prevail? When Jonah is thrown overboard, will deliverance or destruction prevail. And when Nineveh, who has been an evil, wicked, violent people, whose evil has come up before the Lord, we find out in chapter one, when Jonah goes to preach the message, will deliverance prevail or destruction prevail? And here we see Jonah's hope. What is he hoping for? He's hoping for destruction. He is holding out that God is going to destroy Nineveh. If you were here last week, uh, or if you were familiar with the text, you know that 
he is already aware God has decided not to destroy, but in fact to deliver Nineveh. Yet he still holds out hope. We read it a moment ago, but we'll just look at it here again. Think about this. How do we know he's holding out hope? So he's already heard that God is, he's already re realizing God is showing deliverance, but it says in verse five, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat in it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So there's a hope. There's something he's hoping for. He's hoping for destruction. And we just, you know, read about it, but the Lord appointed a plan and the plant comes up and it creates this shade for him to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah's glad about that. Uh, but then dawn came the next day and God appointed a worm and attacked the plant and it withered. And Jonah was faint and he wanted to die. Jonah's false hope or his hope is that his perspective of justice will prevail over God's view of justice. Say it a different way. Jonah's sort of calculus equation for deliverance and destruction, he wants that to prevail over God's understanding and calculation for deliverance and destruction. Jonah's hope is that his view of the world rather than God's will prevail. He's sitting there. He literally is sitting and watching to see. Is God going to change his mind? Come on, God. He goes out of Nineveh. He's sitting on a, uh, in a booth, which he made, and he's in the shade. What is his false hope? His false hope is that God's going to destroy Nineveh, even though God has clearly said he's going to deliver. Actually, he's already delivered them. They have turned their hearts in repentance to, to him. And nevertheless, Jonah is hoping in vain. Now think about God's posture to Jonah in the midst of that. God sovereignly, he blesses Jonah. He gives him a plant to cover him. I mean, this is Middle Eastern heat, the heat of the day. I mean, I can't imagine, of course, here in Champaign-Urbana right now, none of us can imagine blistering heat. But remember a time when that happened. Uh, and you're out the, outdoors and there is no shade and the, and the sun's beating down. That's what Jonah is feeling. And God brings this plan along to give him some shade. God addresses Jonah's hot head in the same way that he addressed last week, as we read about in the first part of chapter four, his hot head in terms of his anger. And Jonah's exceedingly glad about this plant. Thank you, God. You see, I knew you would see things my way. Thank you for providing this shade while I wait for you to destroy this city. God delivered Jonah from the storm. He had delivered Jonah from being tossed into the sea through the fish. Now he's delivering Jonah from the heat. But what happens next? Nightfall comes, then dawn the next day, and then a worm comes creeping along and munch, 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 there goes that plant, it's withered. And when the, the sun comes up the next day, a wind is blowing, no longer is Jonah enjoying shade. He is now faint under the heat of the sun and he wants to die. Jonah's false hope is a false hope because God's already determined 
to show Nineveh compassion. And it's also a false hope because Jonah's hope is in something other than God himself. Jonah's hope is really focused on him and his understanding of his people, the Israelites. He would rather see God be favoring Israel than showing compassion to their enemies, the Ninevites. We have to see God's actions here are not isolated to Nineveh, but they're a reflection of his character and thus they affect us. They affect us in our city, how we view our city, how God views our city. Thus the Lord's compassion for CU and our response. So let's consider God's sovereign compassion. Our second sub point here, God's sovereign compassion. Our culture makes God for the aspect of our culture that has an appetite for, for God, um, it sort of makes God out to be either, you know, a spiritual guide or a spiritual therapist. In other words, you have a problem, you go to God, he solves your problem, he helps you to live the kind of life you're trying to live, or you're not feeling good about yourself, you go to God, he helps you feel better. Now, there's elements of truth in that, but in reality, like Jonah, the emphasis is on ourself. It's a worship of self. David Foster Wallace, who's a postmodernist, he's not a Christian, he says this, he says that we rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it is so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. What is he saying? He's saying we're all selfish. We all, as theologians and throughout church history have said, we all have an inward curve of the soul. We all want to look at ourselves and elevate ourselves or be self-absorbed. He goes on to say, David Foster Wallace, the postmodernist, again, not a Christian, he says, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of uh, God or spiritual uh, type, uh, you know, thing to worship, a reason for choosing one, be it, and he says, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the, the, the four noble tr uh, truths or some, you know, intangible a uh, set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now, what is he saying? Again, he's a postmodernist. He's saying that whatever you worship outside of a deity is going to destroy you. Like if you worship beauty in your own beauty, ultimately you're going to be consumed with how you appear and you're going to suffer under this impression that you never measure up. If you're, if you worship your intellect or your skill or your abilities, you're always going to feel like you're not good enough, or there's somebody out there who's better, who will outshine you. It will destroy you. Now, Jesus, the Lord of glory, the sovereign Lord, he's, and he says that deliverance comes to us a, a different way than the way of the world. The world, the culture says deliverance comes to us as long as we have a God who just kind of helps us along or gives us joy and peace. Jesus says, no, true deliverance comes when you turn from living life with you in the center of your world and instead turn to me in faith and live your life with me in the center. That's true deliverance. Now, why does Christ make this claim? He's making this claim because scripture, and particularly here in Jonah, and our particular our text today, says that God is creator 
and he is sovereign. God is in the center and he is in control of all things, not us, not our judgment, not our view of justice, not anything about us, but God. I love how we were able to just sit and look out the window and think about how God is creator because he is. In fact, think about the way that God is framed as creator throughout the book of Jonah and even in our text today. The author goes out of his way to point this out. In chapter one, verse nine, when this, you know, they're on the boat, Jonah and the sailors and this, this storm, this tempest is raging and the waves and the, they're crashing and they're throwing everything overboard. Jonah, once they identify, he's the reason why this storm has happened. He says that I fear the Lord in verse nine of chapter one. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the dry land. In other words, God made everything. He's creator. Not only is he creator, he is sovereign. He's Lord. He's in control over everything. Consider all of the ways that the text bears this out. Chapter one, verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Who caused the storm? God did. Chapter 1, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Who brought the fish to save Jonah, to deliver him? God did. Chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah, yuck, out upon the dry land. Why did, this, why did the fish deliver Jonah on the dry land? God spoke to it. Now, in our text today, in chapter 4, verse 6, now the Lord God appointed, same word as the fish, God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his hand. God's in control of the plants. He's in control of the fish. He's in control of the sea. Verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. God ordered the worm to eat the plant. Verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. God is in control of the wind. God is in control of everything. He is creator. He's sovereign. We're not the center of the world. He is. He's inviting us to see the world the way he does through his son, Jesus. But not only is God in control of creation and not only is he in control of the order of things, he's in control over all people. He's able to deliver or destroy. Chapter 1, verse 1. Jonah, he tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God is judge over the nations. He sees a people that is not his, no covenant with Nineveh. He sees their evil and he's coming to judge them. He's the sovereign ruler over all people. God's sovereignty brings salvation to the sailors who were pagan worshipers in chapter one. At the beginning of chapter one, they're pagan worshipers. At the end of chapter one, they're making vows to the Lord. God is sovereign over all peoples. He sovereignly saved Jonah. It should have been a really short book, honestly. Jonah goes into the sea, okay, that's it. But God sovereignly saved Jonah when he's thrown overboard. And Nineveh, despite their evil and wickedness, 
God gave them a chance to turn and repent. And as they did, as they relent, as they, they relented of their evil, God relented of the disaster he would bring upon them. He didn't destroy them. He delivered them. God is gracious to Jonah over and over and over, even in his contempt, even in Jonah's contempt for God's compassion towards the Ninevites, such that he provides this shade temporarily for Jonah while he's sitting with a false hope. God is compassionate towards his creation, his creatures, you and I, and our city, because he created us. So that leads us to our invitation. The third part of our subpoints, our invitation, if we're really talking about today, if this text is pushing us to see the Lord's compassion for CU and our response. Let's look at the invitation that's before us. Jonah's ways and God's ways, and I would say our ways and God's ways, are greatly contrasted in this book throughout the text. We see Jonah sitting outside the city of Nineveh. I mean, I could just imagine he's, you know, arms crossed, just waiting come on you know lord you know you know you you're going to destroy the city you know come on you remember how wicked these people are jonah sees the city god sees the city they're looking at the same thing but they're seeing it in two very different ways jonah sees a people who deserve destruction the sovereign lord who created all who is gracious and compassionate sees a repentant people to whom he grants deliverance. The book ends in a question. It's rare for a book of the Bible to end in the question. There's only a couple of instances. And that question in, in, in many ways is an invitation. I'll, I'll, I'll read it for us. Verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God says, Jonah, listen, you have compassion for a plant. It's the same word, the pity or compassion that is used for Jonah's posture towards the plant and God's posture towards the city. So God's saying, Jonah, you have compassion for the plant, which you did not make grow. You didn't plant that. You didn't make it grow, but you pity it. You, you, you missed that plant. You wanted that plant. And God's saying, shouldn't I have compassion for Nineveh and it's a people and it's cattle, a people and cattle that, I create it? The question's an invitation. The invitation is for Jonah, one who has overwhelmingly received mercy, to have compassion for the people that God has compassion for, even if they are Jonah's enemies, even if they are. God's saying, can't you see who I am? You've received mercy, Jonah. You didn't deserve that. 
Should you have not, shouldn't you, having received mercy, have compassion towards those on whom I have mercy? God redeemed Jonah from the storm and the sea with the fish. God delivered him from the heat with the plant. God has redeemed him, Jonah, as one of his people. Shouldn't he have compassion on Nineveh as well? Excuse me, we are like Jonah. We too are fallen. We too have this same tendency to want our justice the way we want it, or to want our view of the world to, to win out, or to want sort of our calculus for where deliverance and where destruction should be meted out the way we want it. Yet there's an invitation for us. Those of us in Christ Jesus like Jonah, have received God's compassion and mercy. And think about how that mercy is delivered to us. Jesus Christ, the author of life, as the scripture says, he was not delivered from the cross, but he was given over to an infinitely great destruction on your behalf and mine. He experienced the wrath of God for you and for me. He did that so that we could, through faith in him, receive God's mercy and compassion and be delivered rather than being destroyed. When God looks at Champaign-Urbana, when he looks at the campus, when he looks at our community, when he sees our neighbors, as he does every day, as he does every moment, he sees what we don't even see about ourselves out of every neighborhood, every part of town. There's a divine invitation for us to see the way he does. The Lord's compassion for CU and our response. He is creator of Champaign-Urbana. He's responsible as he's created all of the world. As we read about in our call to worship and uh, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and, and everything in it. He's the creator. He is sovereign over Champaign-Urbana and everything in it. Every squirrel that we saw a few minutes ago looking out the window, every tree that's positioned, he's sovereign. He's in control over it all. Every person. When you, you know, see headlines or read the headlines or hear them uh, about our our town, you know, what do you think? What do you hope for? Do you hope for deliverance or destruction? Or maybe do you not really think about that? When you think about your neighbors, your, your classmates, your doormates, your roommates, your, uh, your co-workers, people you see in the grocery store, what is your hope for them? Deliverance, destruction, or not really sure? These are good questions for us to ask. In fact, the text is inviting us to ask these questions about ourselves. Do you hope for people as you see them every day or maybe not every day intermittently with our stay at home, but do you hope that they might turn away from living with themselves in the center and live with Jesus Christ in the center of their life to, 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 to receive deliverance instead of destruction? Do you find yourself rather being consumed with what's pressing in your life or, you know, 
what's going on on the national scale or what, whatever the case may be. There's so many other ways that we could uh, focus our energy and our attention. But the Lord is calling us, even as he asked a question to Jonah, he's asking us a question. How will we respond to his mercy? How will we respond to his compassion? How will we respond to other people? Now, how do we cultivate the right response to the Lord's compassion for Champaign-Urbana? Now, I mean, I want to just point out, at no point in all of the book of Jonah does God respond to Jonah with shame. There's never, ever any ounce of shame. God never says, oh my gosh, you know, Jonah, I can't believe you. Just get your act together. Look, this is what I want to do. You just need to get on board. He never, there's never a response that way. He's patient with Jonah. He's patient with you and I. Yet often we think about things like evangelism or being missional. There's this sort of pressure and this, you know, shame. Maybe we're not good enough. I can't do it that way. Or that's not my personality. God never uses shame to motivate his people. How do we cultivate compassion? One thing that's interesting about compassion, Jesus' earthly ministry. Of all that's said about him in his, in his, his uh, you know, empathy or, or rather his emotions on, in his earthly ministry, uh, ministry, the number one thing that is mentioned is his compassion for those around him and his desire, therefore, for his disciples to see the world that way. That extends to you and I. We may have our own view of justice. And what I mean by justice is just the whole concept of as what's playing out in the text, deliverance and destruction. We may have our own view of how that should work out on the campus or the community or, um, you know, maybe maybe it's just as simple as this, you know, as a, as a community of, of, of faith at TCBC, we are campus and community. Maybe it's just but we really need to be about the campus or maybe, or, or maybe your view is no, but we really need to do more for the community. Should not our focus be on whatever, wherever God is moving, no matter whether we are on the campus or whether we are in the community, shouldn't our desire to be to show compassion for whomever God is showing compassion? It is both, it's both the campus and the community. We cultivate compassion by recalling that we are redeemed, that we are not here because we deserve to be, but God in his mercy, he's poured out his goodness on us. Every day, daily, remembering you are who you are if you are in Christ because of God's abundant grace and mercy to you. You did not deserve it. You are a fugitive. He brought you He's brought you home. Secondly, the way we cultivate compassion is by praying for other people, praying for our neighbors, praying regularly for our coworkers, praying for our whole community, for Champaign-Urbana as a whole. The church is called to be a house of prayer for the nations. And thirdly, we have to be willing at some point to step out of what is comfortable to serve our neighbors, our community in Champaign-Urbana in some way. You might say, well, I'm not a speaker. I'm not an extrovert. Well, the good news is you don't have to be. You can serve people in so many different ways. If you can bake, if you can sew, you can quilt, you can shovel snow, you can encourage people. 
you can share lots of things with people all around you and do it in a safe way, even in the midst of our pandemic. So here's a very practical thing I wanna ask us to do. Uh, maybe you have a piece, you know, something to write down with. Take a moment and think of maybe one or two people in our church or one, two or three people, preferably three, not in our church in Champaign-Urbana. And as we are going through the season of Lent, I invite you to pray for them. And I would invite you to pick people that are not your buddies, you know, not your friends. People that maybe you don't know anybody, maybe you just look through the participants here on the screen today and like, I don't know that person, I'll pray for him or I'll pray for her. I'll pray for that family. Somebody in our church. But also pray for, you know, find three people or think of three people. Could be your neighbors, could be your doormates, could be your classmates, could be your professor, it could be anybody. But over the course of Lent, the season of Lent, which takes us, it starts on Wednesday and carries us all the way up to essentially Good Friday, you know, right before Easter. But to pray regularly for them. And then look for opportunities to be a blessing and serve. Where is God calling you to show mercy in Champaign-Urbana? Urbana. I invite you to think about that. And uh, we'll talk more about it in weeks to come. But I, I really invite you to think of some practical ways you could be a part of God's merciful mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace this morning. And Lord, I recognize, um, you know, we're here on Valentine's Day, which is not the focus of this message. And that means a lot of things, a range of things to many people. But Lord, despite whatever that means and how we feel about it, I pray God that we would recall who we are in Christ, recipients of your amazing infinite mercy. That we would recognize that you are sovereign over all of creation, all of life and all of us and our beloved city and that you are inviting us to share your compassion for those around us. Lord, may we respond with willing hearts, with courage, and with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.